out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Dick Lucas, who I spoke to recently, member of um, Culture Shock and also been in Citizen Fish and also the Subhumans. We're talking punk, anarcho-punk, all that kind of groovy stuff. Anyway, look, this is the interview. It's fascinating. Make notes. I will test you at the end. So, um, yes, after several minutes of casual chat, you can imagine we probably just talked about the virus, 2020. It's going well. And um, then we got down to that very interesting, um, yes, conversation. Those early, God, those early musical influences. You know, that moment when you just thought, I want to be... I don't know, into glam rock or something. Anyway, look, this was me. I'd been talking about my early musical influences. It was the early 70s. It was glam rock. And then this was Dick's um, reply. Tell us about those formative years. It's over to you. More or less the same as you up to this point of uh, early and late childhood, except it's one of mum, it's my dad. His taste in music was what I was hearing plus Ed Stupot Stewart on the radio of a Sunday morning. Um, so I'd hear stuff, but there were no like pop records in that. I know there was, our dad had a new Seekers album. He was mainly into classical music. So I heard a lot of classical music when I was a kid. So I guess that might be one of those fundamental background uh, musical taste yeah. things. Um, then it was Pubie, and then you get like Black Sabbath, David Bowie, it's all the good, that's the good stuff. And then you get like Donny Osmond and all the weird poppy stuff that was going on in the early 70s. Yes. Um, I was an avid chart follower. I'd see who was in here and write it all down just to make lists. I like making lists of things. Mm. Um, yeah, so until Punk Rock came along, I was more or less into sort of metal and a little bit of, uh, what's it called? Um Oh, good grief. The stuff that Yes and ELP do, progressive oh, well, rock. Oh, it's, yes. it's into prog rock. Did you have an older yeah. brother or sister? No, a younger one. Right, yes. Because I had one, an older brother, who was seven years older, and that was more, he was, his time was kind of the prog rock period, and that's what he bought, him, bought into. And, and I have to say, I was, I sort of also was very fascinated as a 12-year-old. But he also had Black Sabbath and Deep Purple in that record collection as well, which... And, and um, yes, I was fascinated with Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath and Fireball by Black uh, Deep Purple. So, um, but before <laughs> that, you know, uh, yes, because it was interesting you mentioned Ed Stubot, because I think my mum used to listen to Radio 2 and it was things like Jimmy Young in the afternoon. So that was oh, kind dear. of those kind of soft pop records from Radio 2. But then the new yeah. singers, I Want to Teach the World to Sing, it was a classic. I'm going to turn you up a minute. I think if I do that. Testing? I'm here. Oh, yeah, and you're a lot louder. That's better. Oh, good. <laughs> Excellent. Two, <laughs> two. Yes. So then, I mean, were you, because I was brought up in, in sort of dear old East Anglia in the countryside, so it was all very working class and there was no kind of, um, there's no kind of career path. People either, when they left school, went into the chicken factory or the jeans factory or sort of done some sort of manual work on a farm. So kind of our aspirations in life were very low at the time. Um, they didn't even really care if you took an exam or not at the end of, of it. So what was your kind of teen years like at school? 
For better or worse, and at the time, definitely, I thought it was worse. I've never got around to thinking for better. I went to a boarding school because my dad went there and he thought it was good. So he sent me there and he got a discount, one parent family and all that sort of thing. Before anyone starts thinking, oh, he's got rich parents or anything like that, that people do associate with boarding school tales. Um, so Puck Rock came along when I was like 16 and some in like a couple of years before leaving school. And it just completely shifted everything right round for the better, for me personally. Uh, it made sense of everything because it took everything and just sort of ripped it apart and said, this is rubbish, basically. <laughs> and who's in control? It just raised a lot of questions. And uh, you grow up with a lot of questions inside you, I guess, with hindsight, that you don't even know are there until someone else asks them. Yeah. And you think, that's a good question. What is this doing it what, why is this like that why do I have to wear this uniform why don't I like you know songs about school you know it's like skip off school by the pop rivets um which is the only one I can think of right now but on the suburban studs did um I hate school uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Eater did a couple of songs about school but it was like people my age singing stuff that just sort of wound them up yeah and suddenly they didn't really have to be very good at playing instruments as long as he just sort of like yelled a lot and, and made, made, made silly faces. And it just carried a, carried a long way because people wanted that refreshment. Yeah. Because pre previous to that, it was all prog rock and it was all for rich people to go and see in stadiums you'd never get anywhere near uh, by bands who were just way older than you were. And it was all just so remote. And punk rock brought music and suddenly lyrics for a change closer to home. Uh, that's why a lot of people got into it. Yes. It wasn't, it wasn't the... Because um, I was, I have to say, I was too young when punk hit in 60, um, 60 76 and 77, because I was born 64. And you you were probably also, you know, in that kind of 12... 61. 60. Mm. Oh, you were born 61. So you definitely got there. Um, you were definitely sort of old enough to sort of have the influence because it was kind of, it just passed me by actually. But your boarding school days, because I remember one New Year's Eve being with some friends who, and they turned out that four of them had been to boarding school and it was just hell. They just all kind of regaled, you know, because they weren't from rich families at all. I don't know. I think they're like their parents would like, or father would go, oh yes, this is quite good for you. I was a you know, I think this will toughen you up. And it's like, my God, it was just torture. And so they were all slightly, you know, did you did you manage to survive that vaguely in, intact or did it sort of leave you kind of like, Christ, this is hideous. It, oh, it left me um, jaded at quite an early age with the entire human race. Uh, it made me very aware of the nature of authoritarianism, of hierarchies, of macho behaviour. It was an all boys school. Um, it less left me on the, the romantic side of life to be what you might call a late developer. <laughs> but uh, all the better for it. Um, yeah, there was a lot of bullying. There was just rules and rules and rules. And you could be expelled for being caught possessing cigarettes twice, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it was, it was, uh, I mean, it was a good education, but then again, what did I do with my education? I didn't go to university. I went straight into a crap job to do with cars that I knew nothing about. And as soon as I earned enough off, off music to do that, I just left that whole thing behind. Um, yeah. So no matter that it taught me a lot about English, French, yada, 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 it taught me a lot about how people 
treat each other and how so-called human nature is just warped and twisted by a very male, macho, hierarchical society. And a little nugget of which I'd been, the born is I'd been put into. Um, my life experience was probably different than if I'd gone to a comprehensive mixed sex school. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that, and I can't make assumptions because I don't know that. Um, but what most changed my life about going to boarding school was actually the fact punk rock came along about midway through it. And I think that would have happened no matter what school I went to. Yeah, absolutely. So then when did you discover your, your voice? When did you think, actually, I can sing or at least get behind the microphone? Well, um, I kind of liked singing as a kid. Get behind the microphone. No, I, I don't know where to start with this one. Um, basically, I couldn't play any instruments. I was at boarding school. We formed a punk band called The Mental, me and my brother, and Psychic and Toby and Tony, five of us. They're all his age. I was like two years older. And um, we were a right racket. Um, so I couldn't sing. You know, I, I just bawled and yelled and tried to reach high notes and couldn't and didn't even think about it. Um, any proficiency in singing I might have later on is really due to just doing it a lot and getting better at it and suffering through not singing what they call properly. Yeah. Like if you if you smoke loads of cigarettes and drink loads of cider before you go singing for three quarters of an hour, your voice will be wrecked by the end of it. And it takes you maybe 20 years to learn that. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, you get you hit 30 or 40 or whatever. And uh, by, by, by that point, if you want to carry on singing, which everybody should just sing, basically, at least once a week to themselves or to the whole world. It's just good for the soul, good for the lungs, good for your voice. I saw a doctor once and uh, he said, well, your, your voice is all right, your lungs are all right. He said, do you smoke? I said, yeah. He said, oh, well, what else do you do? I said, well, I'm a singer. He said, ah, that'll be it. So singing is actually good for the lungs, which is right. why I allow myself to carry on smoking. Ha! <laughs> kind of counteracts it, really. Yes. Yeah. So were you doing, um, with, with the band, The Mentor, were you covering hmm. songs at that stage? Were you, or you, had you started sort of trying to, to... We did the world's only French version of Paranoid by Black Sabbath. That was uh, a cover version we did. Uh, generally, that was our own songs. They were pretty awful. We did actually make an EP, four-track EP, called the Extended Play EP, because we weren't good on titles. Um, 600 of those got made and sold. And John Peel played one song off it twice, which is rather nice. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, that must have it, 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 didn't, it, didn't, it didn't touch any of the other bands later on, just that one by the mental, which is crazy. <laughs> 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 yes. So obviously that was that was relatively short-lived, but a good starting. So how did you then sort of find yourself joining the subhumans? Um, well, we all lived in West Wiltshire, which is a pretty dead place in like 19... 79, 1980 times for gigs. There were occasional gigs in Bath, which is like the big city, 20 miles away. We didn't go there much, just sort of hung around our own local youth centres. And then suddenly the Angelic Upstarts were playing in Trowbridge, which is a big, big punk band in a small West Wiltshire town. And it was very exciting. So 
we all went to that. We didn't know each other at this point, but I met them at that gig. And uh, this was Bruce, the guitarist, and Julian, the singer of a band called The Stupid Humans, who were going at the same time as the Mental were going. They were in Warminster. I was in Melksham. And uh, we made Trowbridge. And it's like, hey, you in a band? Yeah. Are you in a band? Yeah. It did seem like everybody was actually in a band then. Yes. Yeah. The other world, they were thinking about it. Anyway, I went over to see them practice. We had a good few sessions together, uh, became good mates. Uh, the mental split up, stupid humans split up. Me and Bruce were good mates. We got together, let's form a band. And we got Grant from another local band, Audio Torture, who split up and then found Andy, who's on drums. And that was like, um, that was around about uh, August 1980. And were you, I mean, had you, I would imagine the, I know the answer, but were bands like Crass suddenly sort of appearing in your life and you were starting to think this, this is more what we're into than the sort of the post-punk period? Because there was obviously, you know, most musical scenes have a bit of a glory period and then things get a bit sort of not so great. Um, and punk started so well and then it started getting a bit corny. So did you, were you sort of picking up those kind of other sort of, you know, from, from Dial House, you know, all those kind of vibes? Yes, to a certain extent. Uh, we never actually met Crass until way later on. Uh, we didn't visit Dial House, uh, bought a few of their records. Um, musically, we weren't really influenced by him. Um, but lyrically, it was almost subliminal. Um, but when you actually look at lyrics, like the lyrics to Band from the Roxy, um, include the lines... Can we swear on this program? Yeah, 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 that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, what's that for? The system Christ is everywhere. School, army, church, the corporation deal. A fucked up reality based on fear, a fucking conspiracy to stop you feeling real. Now, all the sentiments you ever felt and wonderments about the nature of the system and the way life was, all these things. Here's a little four-line package. Carry that around with you and think about that. Because I hadn't thought about corporations. I wasn't even sure what a corporation was. You know what I mean? It's like the church is part of the system. What's this system? Why, why was the church be on the wrong side of crass? It were like saying all this stuff. It's like, wow. And I, you just start thinking about stuff a lot deeper, how a lot of things are planned out. How, you think about the structure of society. And like when you're like, wherever I was, 18, 19, that's not the sort of stuff, at least back then, that you tended to think about. Um, so it did open up a lot of brain cells into thinking, what is everything about? And the whole idea of questioning things came right up. Before that, I was writing semi-surreal, semi-silly, partly serious songs, but uh, not many with any depth. And then yeah, I mean, subliminally, Crass did open up a few more brain cells inside me. Yeah. This is partly said with hindsight. I wasn't walking around going, Crass are brilliant, they're amazing. It's just like, people like Crass, the same way we like Discharge, the Sex Pistols, the Vibrators, the Adverts, all sorts. Wire, you know. Yes. All, all of these bands have got uh, influential lyrics, and Crass's just helped it become more serious the more I thought about what I was writing. Yes. And did you, and did it, I mean, was it something that you sort of, look, with hindsight, look back and think, oh yes, when I was at school, I did enjoy sort of, 
English literature, poetry. Did it? Oh, did it did. It? Oh, yeah. I always liked words anyway. Crosswords, anagrams, uh, rhyming stuff, you know, poetry. Uh, I was, you know, good at English at school where you had to do it, but I was good at it because I liked words. Yeah. I could put imagination into words, which is quite a handy thing to be able to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so when, you know, because at that stage, it was quite interesting, in 79, Thatcher gets into power and we, we sort of up to, up to then, you know, the, the sort of number 10 had been sort of like, you know, people were coming in and out between, you know, different political parties. And then suddenly things really change in the 80s and uh, there was mass unemployment. We had the Falkland crisis, then we had the miners' strike. And, and a lot of bands at that stage that I've interviewed were, you know, either claiming dole or they were on the Job Seekers Allowance. Did you, did you sort of go in that sort of general direction of, you know, because I know talking to Joseph Porter from Blythe Power and various other people, they went, oh, yes, we did the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. Did, did, was that one of those kind of, kind of routes that you took? Um, some of us did. Some of us were on the dole, others weren't. I, I had two jobs before... I left them, um, only signed on once, and that was for about four weeks, because uh, I was out of a job and out of money. I was between jobs. What scared me was that um, at the time, I had a Canadian girlfriend, and I was set to go flying over to Toronto for a Christmas with her and her family. And uh, the dole office sent round a woman, you know, a little old lady, basically, who sat there and said, "Right, we hear you're going. You're going to Canada soon." And I'm like, "I'm like, what? How do they know that? This is it. Like, you know, we're talking 1980 yeah. before CCTV mm-hmm. and everyone had things to record you on all over the place." Anyway, I'm diverting off the topic, probably. Um, oh, where were we? The, dan- I- the dangers of being on the system, I guess. Yes. Sorry, how did we get to this? Well, because I said um, about a lot of people were had, you know, especially in the early 80s, there was that feeling if you were sort of in the team. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gold, gold keeps right. Yes, yes. So some, um, of us were, some of us were on the dole and uh, finding all the loopholes to get the extra money from and basically getting whatever you could out of the system, yeah. which had like a lot of holes in it that could be worked to get yourself more money and more leniency. And before the dole system got really, really, really heavy about making you take um really bad jobs at minimum less than minimum wage or then they start cutting your dole off and then there's a working experience scheme and various other schemes that had various names that basically used unemployed people as wage slaves for corporations who would just sack them after the six month of government subsidized workforce and replace them with even more government subsidized workforce um and it's, it hasn't really got better since there's hardly any apprenticeships left to be had. Industry of the mechanical productive side has been torn to bits. Everything's now restaurants, offices, and phone people. It's all buttons on computers, and people aren't working with their hands as much, hardly. And uh, the nature of work reveals its true face. It's there to make money for people who've got a lot more than you have or ever will have. Yes, 
This is true. And then, so when you were when you were in the subhumans at that stage, did you feel like you were part, beginning to be part of a movement? Because there was obviously quite a lot of other anarcho-punk bands that were sort of forming at the same time. And there was that sort of the squat movement of the 80s. And there was a particular vibe, look, the fanzine, you know, did, did you suddenly think, oh, actually, we've, we've stepped into kind of quite a nice scene. And also, you know, you, you start to get a sort of ready-made audience, which is sounds, you know, you know, people... These are, sort of, these are sort of things that you observe with a lot of hindsight. So at the time, no, we didn't think like that at all. But there again, at the time, on a gig by gig, travel by travel experience, we were suddenly, we were offered some gigs by Flux of Pink Indians. And that was our first gigs outside Wiltshire, the local area. And at the same time, Crass was going, as was Flux and Rudimentary P Night and the system of various bands like this at the same. So there was a lot of gigs happening. And there were quite a few alternative venues or autonomous centres were being set up yeah. in various places, mostly London, which is true, but others elsewhere. And the bands we were playing with suddenly, there was a lot of real fresh bands who weren't just Pistols fans, but were like keeping it young even though we weren't old enough to be old yet, you see what I mean? They, they were taking it all, they put, made, keeping it fresh. Yeah. You see what I mean? Well, a lot of bands by 80, 81 had uh, done their punk thing for like two or three years and just split or got out of their jobs or whatever. So there was a lot of fresh bands about. with a lot to say and a bit of comedy, but a lot of social conscience was starting to come into it. And yeah, it felt great. Uh, just meeting all these people and gradually sort of the idiots became less and less and less there was less violence after a while I mean, it took a few years in the 80s before a lot of skinheads thought they were part of the punk scene because of the oi thing they equated oi with punk and skinhead and they equated skinhead with violence and being tough and all that sort of thing which pissed off a lot of the actual skinheads the the uh you know, the two-tones, two-tone yeah. skinheads. Um, there was a lot of stupid inter-scene <coughs> trouble at gigs. Um, for more bands, for some bands more than others, we didn't get much of it. It just depended uh, the venue you played in, really. And forewarned was forearmed. Yes, um, absolutely. But that gradually died out, um, especially with the creation of venues that had more control over their own venue, they could just say to any skinheads who looked dodgy or were dodgy turning up, if there's any trouble, you will be kicked out. And gradually they either got into what they were experiencing or just left the so-called hippie punks to get on with it and went off to do whatever they did. <coughs> um, not saying the scene was exclusive at all, it was very inclusive, but a set of values and morals was building up that started with stopping violence and then inbuilt be nicer to people who aren't like you became anti-racist anti-sexist it uh, there was the um oh the anl in uh in the early 80s the whole anti-sexist rock against racism all that was coming up cnd was coming up a lot of things were getting um popularized by the youth, a lot of which were influenced by punk rock, is what I think. Yeah. Punk rockers were en masse at these mass gatherings 
of um, value-based protests to make the place a better place to live in for a lot of people. And did you, uh, did, and did you sort of, and this might be in retrospect as well, but looking back at that sort of punk period and then the anarcho-punk period, do you sort of feel that it's quite, they're quite, diff quite different in a lot of class and val values to, to each movement, if one wants to sort of pigeonhole both, you know, as those two things in, in two different groups? Sorry, which two groups are we talking well, about? Well, I suppose the punks, which kind of quickly, punk rock became a bit sort of, I don't know, corny, whereas the anarcho-punk movement kept it quite solid and serious and, and quite passionate about what they really believed and didn't particularly go on that, oh my God, I could become a pop star and suddenly get sort of a stylist and suddenly throw you know, different shapes on stage to sort of try and... Well, punk, punk did go off in several directions. Uh, one of which was the anarcho-punk, one of which was oi, one of which was the punk metal crossover. Punk got very thrashy along with was Discharge, give them credit for that, followed by Disorder, who sped it up twice as fast. That created a whole different spike on the uh, punk musical wig or whatever. <laughs> um, there was, in terms of class, uh, the oi punks backed by Gary Bush and a few other journalists for the sounds and that music paper at the time, they were very much into their working class um, way of putting things. Um, quite macho, borderline violent in some cases. The boot boys loved it. Um, a lot of really nice people also loved it, got to say that. Um, musically, uh, though, I found the content to be way too, way too much of this macho street talk we're on the streets we run the streets la, 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 la. do you really it's not much of an ambition is it to run the streets it, it, it's not of gang mentality very bravado and very stamping and stompy and stuff like that whereas some oi bears like slodgenessa bounds who were a punk band really but the you know, the, there was crossover there's always crossover these lines get set up and even years later we go with them just to like discover that they're blurred yeah um so there was there was um so and gary bushell didn't like crass because they didn't want to be interviewed by him and they didn't want to be on the front camera sounds and he really liked them to start if he thought they were very exciting they 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 demo tape whatever but then he didn't like him so he set up this whole like crass are just hippie anarchist leftist socialist is this this it'll never get anywhere meanwhile the real things out on the street with all the oil music and so on and so on so he was setting up divisions and the tourists with divisions like this and labels in general is that like um people who are young need need attachments uh beyond their regular ones you know they want new and exciting but they want it kind of safe as well so they like attachments they like they'll have a label they'll pick punk or this sort of punk or new wave or goth or whatever they are dressing up they haven't they like the label they like the feeling of being beyond society's common knowledge and they like the camaraderie of similar people and this is all a good bit of human nature it's called individualism finding itself uh in company which is where individuals should find themselves um that's one of the things that went wrong with factorism. She preached individualism as the key to success. And 
a lot of people took that the wrong way and thinking, yeah, I'll do it for myself. They got that mixed up with saying crass saying think for yourself. And Thatcher was saying individualism was a basic stamp on everybody else. That's not the same as thinking for yourself. No, no, far from it. Yes. Um, Lost a train of thought, you know. I know, right. I know. It's, it's good. <laughs> I think we were basically talking about the division. I was kind of curious about some of the punk stuff that, that some, you know, had a certain amount of kind of a middle class kind of background, especially with management and stylists and trying to suddenly grab the money, thinking, oh, actually, we can grab lots of money here. Whereas the anarcho punk didn't seem to be quite so, oh, look, you know, how to play the game to sort of get the big record deal to. Quickly think. Oh no, the whole point the whole point was that everybody could do the massive point about the anarcho punk was the, the DIY element. In the same way as uh, Mark Perry started sniffing glue. I mean DIY the fanzine that is. <laughs> <Yes>. Um <coughs> all very DIY. It started with punk rock, and when Crash came along, it was like, here's how you do it, not just like here's what other people have done. Um, but it, it wasn't just fanzines and the written word anymore, or even running the venue. It was actually running your own label, putting out your own records. That was like the bit that early DIY punk really—I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, even 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 Rough Trade was DIY independent. <laughs> even the big names of it, small independent of independent yeah. labels were small one day. So yeah, um, but yeah, DIY was a big part of the anarcho thing. The price thing, crashes and subsequently ours and several other bands policy of putting pay no more than a price that was about two thirds of re normal retail price at the time um, was a, a deliberate way to stop record stores um, profiting off the backs of our music, uh, to stop business making money out of punk and fleecing the punters at the same time. It was a price that would be above the cost of making the record and the sleeve and uh, sometimes only just. In fact, Crass made one record, they sold it for 45 pence and it actually cost them 60 pence to make it, it was a bit daft. Yes, this is true. I think New Order... But yeah, the, pr the price is important. I mean, we've always tried to keep gigs relatively cheap. I'm quite astounded by the price of gigs on a regular basis because they're always about five to 10 quid ahead of what we're saying has got to be our maximum for a gig. Um, I just think it's good to live off music, but it's good to have it like available at a price that people can still afford to have a couple of drinks with or whatever, you know, not something they have to save up for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yes, absolutely. No, I'm I mean, money is the love of money is the root of all evil. And if you could put money, if you're lucky enough to be able to put money towards the bottom of your, worries and concerns and infatuations and you know obsessiveness and all that if it's just at the bottom if it's below everything else in your brain you're going to leave a more creative friendly happy self-sustaining life i think no oh, god absolutely I mean, yeah speaking yeah speaking of someone who's never actually been completely broke well yeah well okay once but you know what i mean yes i had a job so so, so then i get some back so then uh, a few years after being in the band, you, you released the classic album, which is, is still regarded as, as kind of one of the great 
punk albums of our time, which must have felt like, okay, this is, this is going very well. Did it, when you were writing and recording it and going in the studio, did, did it feel like the band had really sort of come together at that stage and the, and the stars had aligned? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> uh, we were still that young in our heads that notions like coming together and forming a perfect way, I'm presuming talking about Day the Country Died. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I've just been um, reading and transcribing the diary that I wrote over the days we did that album um, because I'm going to do some uh, LP, Subhuman's LP box set liner booklet notes. I thought I'd base it on what I wrote at the time, which is uh, far from mature, together or seasoned. (laughs) It's just completely uh, bewildered, angry, bored. How Boring is mixing in a studio. So, yeah, it just, it's very, the newest thing about it was the fact we were doing an actual LP, because I knew the importance of an LP. If it was a single, the LP was the the target, right? If you yes. get to make an LP, you really are a proper band if you've made an LP. Everyone can make an EP just about tapes, yada, yada. LP, come on. <laughs> so we were like really excited about the fact it was an LP. Um, Couple of songs we hadn't practiced enough, we had to do over and over again. And uh, ideas would just pop up on the spur of the moment. There was a big, I think, a big, big reverb, like, uh, what's worth that? A cylinder in the corner of the studio. It was something to do something. Wires went in, wires came out. And if you put a guitar through it, you got a nice reverb. There's old fashioned 80s stuff. It's not like dials and digits yet. And uh, if you hear it, it goes like that. So we thought that sounds like a bomb going off or an airplane coming in. So we used that for the beginning of the first song, All Gone Dead. <coughs> and then use it again at the end of Black and White at the end of Side Two. That's that sort of wind noise. That's that reverb machine. But that wasn't a plan. Now, that was just, you find these things out in the studio. I thought my voice was absolutely awful because I hadn't developed the singing or whatever it's called. So luckily I then discovered they can put like, ADT, automatic double tracking, and a bit of reverb on a voice can like soften out all the harshness and shriekiness and horribleness and make it sound semi okay, which it did in the end. So we were younger, we didn't have any plans beyond what we were doing at the time or beyond like the next record um, and the next few gigs. There was no game plan. Yeah. Um, we just arrived at the point of making an LP and we were very happy with that. So um, when you- you know, What's your memory of then writing or recording Mickey Mouse is Dead? Because that, that's kind of one that's had phenomenal listens, haven't it? I mean, that's... I know. That's... <laughs> so that is an extraordinarily popular song. It, it beats uh, the song No into second place by more than double the votes on whatever chart you're looking at. Um, there's such a thing on Spotify. Plays, yeah, so it's, 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 yeah. it's got four million listens, Mickey Mouse. What? Four million? Yes. Wow. That's that... bad. So that I was just anyway, looking. Yeah, so I, wrote, I wrote. Oh no, I, sorry, three million. Sorry, and uh, no's got damn. one and a half. So it's just not enough, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so obviously that that kind of something happened when you sat down, wrote it, and then went to record it. Um, wrote that at work in between serving customers. <laughs> uh, shiver, yeah. Um. And as I wrote it, I wasn't quite sure where this was going. It was a train of thought about comedy uh, that started with like, Mickey Mouse is dead. I thought, there's a first line. Where does that go? 
head, dead head. I mean, dead head, right? School rule, dead head. These things, always they just are. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, got shot in the head. And I thought, because people got too serious, they planned out what they said. It's like, oh, right. But, like, what does that mean? I don't know. Mickey Mouse is done. Okay, he's been kidding. So, Mickey Mouse, yeah, it, it was yeah, it was the days of um, Alexis Sale Benel. New comedy was coming in. It right. was very fast. It was very sharp. It was very cynical, very political. And I just thought the simplistic humour of Mickey Mouse, where he goes like that, and everybody, ah, and then he does it again. It, that really simplistic. Um, had gone. Whether I cared or not, whether it had gone or not, is not the point. I didn't care if I never saw another Mickey Mouse cartoon in my life. You know, it's, it's like, okay, it's historical. Yes. But it's, it's dull. Give me Lexi Sale anytime. Not that he's a cartoon. But in terms of humour, and I just musing aloud and making it rhyme about the, the jadedness of society that needs humour to be um, offensive and critical and poke fun at things, society's reached a point where it can only now laugh at what they call alternative comedy. And that supplies a laughter that comes from, um, from the negative. It does turn negative into positive though, because that, that's a very good thing about it. And I'm not actually slagging it off at all, because I love that sort of humor. And I do the same in some of my songs. I turn something negative and I will moan about it and slag it off. It's not comedy, but I like to, try to find some either humorous or positive part to that yes <clears throat> yes so anyway uh, the actual writing the song writing the song was probably very close to getting into discharge as a musical force that no one had ever done before uh, that speed and such brevity it was like wow knocked in the head um in fact some could say the structure of the chords in Mickey Mouse is there. Is, shall we say, a lot like one or two of Discharge's songs. But never mind, we'll let it pass. I mean, in reggae, they share the same bass lines left, right and centre, and no one complains. Yes. So let's do that. Yeah. Yes. And you always <laughs> had a, quite a, a very strong rhythmic quality to the band, which was very danceable as well, wasn't it? It wasn't just like you were talking about for the foot stamping sound of oi. You always made the sound of the subhumans and other combos kind of a band to go and pop to. That's interesting. I never really thought of subhumans at all as a danceable band. As a pop Whereas with, this, with, with the scar element of Citizen Fish and Culture Shop, we want to be danceable. Um, but with subhumans, it was, I didn't care if people danced or not. If they sort of twitched and flung themselves about, which I guess was punk rock dancing, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, then that was good. If they stood still, it'd be like, what, come on, you know? Yes. So then, after that... I can't, I can't dance to music at all. Not punk music. <coughs> so Even on stage, all I, all I do is just some sort of repetitive twitch action. Yes, well, that's that's good. But or, or flailing one's elbows about. So, how did the band sort of finish? And then your your stage two of um, joining Culture Shock happen. Okay, uh, how did the band finish? That again is not a clear cut thing, and I've I've never had a, a sentence or a soundbite to sum it up precisely. Um, but briefly speaking, it was more a case of um, situation just overtook 
the decision to split up. Um, we had a meeting in Phil's parents' garden about where we were going and how it was going. Because there's a bit of like, it's not going very well-ish thing going on. And uh, we thought slightly differently. Some thought we could do better and move into a different sort of music. I really didn't want that to happen. I thought we were going on a slow but short upward tangent, generally speaking. Um, at this point, we're talking about 1985, bands like Conflicts had split up. I mean, they reformed, but they split up and other bands were splitting up left, right and centre. It did seem like a sort of a, a slump was going on. Um, the, uh, the attention was now being paid to Bad Religion and Rancid. The American influence has popped back up again. In, as it does in cycles, I guess. Yes. Um, anyway, so we had that meeting. We did three, what we call sort of temporarily last gigs in uh, November 85. And um, then didn't plan to do anything except we did have a few songs left over. So in December, from December, yeah, and January, I guess, we invented side two of our last record, 29-29 Split Vision, and relearned side one, which was songs that we'd had for a while, some of them, that we just dropped and never played, but still thought we should do something with them. So side one was the old stuff we hadn't done yet, and side two was brand new stuff. Some of which musically was showing me how Bruce was going, progressing with his, his head state in terms of the sort of music he wanted to play next. There was all sorts of elements in some of those songs on side two, and I'm still not quite used to them. Um, so that happened. And then in the same month, January 86, um, I was asked if I wanted to sing for what then became Culture Shop. And as a sub, he was worth doing any gigs at that point. I started up with Culture Shock and we did a demo tape and then we just carried on doing stuff. And the subject of whether the subhumans should actually decide whether we'd broken up or not didn't come into it. We were, that was in January. In June, we were mix, still mixing 29 Split Vision because we it was just happening in, in piecemeal pieces. And um, it, then it was just all over and no one really, we didn't never converse about the whys and wherefores. It just was over and done. Yes. Um, there was no mourning, there was no gravesite robbery or anything like that. Obviously. No, no, um, no. <laughs> it just, I just got on with it. Bruce got on with another band uh, called Switch for a couple of years, one year. They did a demo tape. It was all quite progressively sort of music. And how did you um, sort of being part of another band with different members? Did that feel like a kind of a fresh start for you? That you thought it was absolutely fresh start. I mean, the music they were made, I mean, I knew. I knew Nigel and Bill because they were in the A-Heads um, and organised Chaos, other local bands at the same time. So we'd grown up together more or less in the last five years or whatever. And uh, Nigel's mate Paul came up from Cornwall to play bass. He had some mega bass lines. Bill, who'd been drumming for organised Chaos, like bam, 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 the four fours, fast as you like, for like years, was suddenly now well into this dub, ska, reggae beats all over the place. And I suddenly had all this space to sing in. Whereas before it was like cram 20 syllables in music that goes like that. And now you can cram 10 syllables in music that lasts three times as long. And suddenly that's, I guess, back to your earlier question, where I found my voice. 
aha thank you now i know where i found it <laughs> it was there it was there all along you needed more space in the music yeah that's what it was but it was Maybe. interesting you, there, there was space in there was space in human error come think of it uh yeah well, well it's a mixture but suddenly there's always space to sing in and singing along to it, it was just um i really really had a good eye-opener i said the possibilities of mixing what we'd already done with what could be done and that's why culture shock became quite a mixture of music and did you feel that with the with the the, the change in the sonic quality of the band and the music and the and the general rhythm that people were able to sort of focus a bit more on what you were singing and the lyrical content rather than just thinking, well, I'm not quite sure, but it all sounds very dramatic. Whereas now your lyrics were being given some more sort of um, attention, I suppose, by the listener. Um, yes, I mean, that does happen. People tell me it happens. And it's quite obvious that if you, if you can hear the words because they're being sung slower, you're going to be listening to them and understanding them, thinking about them more if they deserve to be understood and thought about. Um, which is why singing faster just requires lyric sheets. And there you go. Yeah. Um, and, and at that stage, there was a kind of a whole movement of sort of the Red Wedge movement. And you had mentioned Rock Against Racism. There was also all those other things. The squatting movement was quite big in the 80s in every city had a squat a certain scene didn't they as well and um yeah there was a lot of kind of movement towards a kind of a reggae there was bands like the the rhythm rhythmites and from the rhythmites, rhythmites. Yeah. and and there was definitely people wanting to get slightly stoned going to free festivals concerts you know benefits and having a bit of a good time and it wasn't going to be just full of men wanting to kick off there was like more of a gender balance did that feel did you feel a bit happier with the next kind of you know with culture shock and your next musical episode yes because um coincidentally we were, we were talking about the end of the stonehenge festival the start of the free festival movement and between that and rave more or less taking over all the festivals there was a glorious kind of four or five years and um, of a lot of festivals most of which were still free and still happening. And um, even though Thatcher and the right-wingers managed to shut down Stonehenge, we still had little gatherings around it on the equinoxes and solstices, as close as we could get. It was like a, a smaller version of the running battles of the Beanfield yes, in um, A6. Because we, but there was- I was gonna say- you're, you're, uh, Yeah. Sorry. There was, you're right about the other, uh, there was also, and almost 50-50 male-female uh, working together, going to these things. It was very open, uh, very mindful. And yeah, there was a lot of drugs about, but there always is at festivals, no matter what festival it is. Um, but that was like, um, I don't want to sound like a hippie, it was like a lot of love and peace going on. And also a lot of anger and political awareness. It was a really good mixture. You got happy and angry. And I, I think that's the best to human emotions that can be mixed together and enhance each other. Yes. Well, like you said, there was a bit of a time there, wasn't there? Because there was the sort of birth of the Peace Convoy, if you remember the Peace mm -hmm. Convoy, I'm sure you do. And the sort of Stonehenge, you know, the free festival movement, lots of squats. There were places in, you know, you know, Leeds, Bradford, the one in 12 Club, and then obviously in London, lots of squats as well. So obviously that kind of group of people, the 16 to I don't know, 20 year olds who suddenly became kind of like leaving home 
wanting to sort of have have sort of a soundtrack to their life I guess you know culture shock would have definitely sort of filled that gap alongside people like Blythe Power and Chumbawamba and the astronauts as well so there was definitely a look and a vibe wasn't there there definitely was we were playing as many festivals as we could um some on the back of just a simple phone call um well most actually <laughs> um they were happening and you go, you take the gear and see if you could play, even if you weren't like officially invited. It was before there was much official invitation to do these things. It's just like you you went there, there were bands playing. There was degrees of organization from like none to a lot. Um, like that one that one phone call, we went down to a so-called festival uh down in Davidstow. Uh, no, 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 Camelford. Not the Davidstow Festival. It was one in Camelford. It was dark and raining by the time we got there because we'd left about five and got there about ten. You know, it just took forever. Um, they had the tent and they had a drum kit, uh, but that was it. But they managed to sort of look around the site for an hour or two and found some kit. And we played for a little bit and it was all very wet and there was 20 people watching. And they were all very wet. It was all very muddy. And then we got covered in mud and got back in the van and drove back <laughs> and on the on the other extreme of that there was the elephant fair which is extremely organized and then it was Triwogi tree fair and it's like fantastic festivals they were the peak of how festivals should be uh before it all got really heavy again um with the oh not forgot what it's called the something 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 act he oh. said precisely Yes, I criminal mean, just criminal justice act. This is true. This is true. Yes, that, that when, came in. It it illegalized repetitive beats. It illegalized gatherings over this many, and so on and so on. It kind of put a real dent in the enthusiasm. Well, yes, they they they're always liking bringing those laws in, don't they? But then you know, sort of recording your first couple of albums with the band, you did go wild, and then onwards and upwards. Did that feel you know with the honeymoon period that bands have? Was that a period that you you sort of got very fond memories of? Yes. Which is yeah, I have I have very few unfond memories of culture shock. You tell me. <laughs> right. So when it you know because because I haven't done this show for a long time. Most bands have this kind of five year narrative. You know they get together twelve months kind of rehearse and then they get a single an EP and a lot of bands especially in the 80s would get the John Peel playing the John Peel session. What was your kind of, you know, with Culture Shock, how did that develop? Because you went kind of up, up till sort of the, the sort of late 80s before finishing. What was the sort of reason for that? We, we lasted um, four years. Yeah, uh, almost exactly four years. What, what ended that uh, wasn't really... It was a um, situation again. Um, it was... Uh, pregnancies and babies and the sudden rearrangement of people's lives, Nigel and Bill were both going to become dads and uh, they wanted to make cultures like something that happened maybe twice a year rather than every weekend doing whatever we could. They wanted to make it less busy. Uh, they needed to get some proper wages in, get actual jobs because they'd have a family to look after, which is an, an entirely sensible point of view. Yeah. Um, me and Jasper, who was basis at that point, uh, weren't planning on having kids, and we really wanted to do something more than twice a year. So 
it just sort of stopped. Uh, we tried um, we tried Trotsky outside Humans on drums, um, but it didn't really have the same style as Bill had, so we uh, knocked it on the head. Yeah. Um, and uh, then me and Jasper started off Citizen Fish. So, so as that started, but then, you know, there was the sort of the human, you know, sad, tragic moment that um, Nige dies a few years later. That must have been quite horrendous for, for the other members of the band. It was just a physical, the physical mental shock of it. Um, you just, it's just disbelief and coming to grips, coming to grips with that disbelief is, is, is tricky. Um, there's a lot of trying to ignore it, but you can't because you know someone so well and then you find out all this background that led to that. And I'm not going into detail of how and why, actually. No. But, uh, we got very good memories of him, and it was a it was a loss, a bad loss, at a way too early age for these things to to happen. Yes. No. It's it's like we've, you know, I suppose most people, you know, you're sort of going along. It's all very exciting, and nothing nothing's going to harm you, you know, and. Well, you feels you know like that, doesn't it? You don't, you don't in your brain. As we get older, you start to sort of expect things like you know to happen. But when you're young, you don't expect anything like that. So it's always quite horrendous when you just kind of keep telling yourself, "But I'm not going to see him again," or "I'm not going to see her again." It's a very hard one to get your brain around, and it's and you realise I don't know. It's it's kind of like oh yeah, this is this is you have to you have to try and um, I hate to say you have to move on, but you have to move on with the thought of that person in your head telling you, come on, onwards and upwards, keep it going. Don't stop because I, I'm not here. Just like carry it forward. Whatever he supplied, music-wise, friendship-wise, keep it going. I mean, it's a good natural instinct to want to do that anyway. And so, yeah, we all, we have to, we have to go onwards and upwards like he did. And that's the way life carries on, or else we'd all be pretty depressed by the time we get to the age we're at now, because people start dying when you start hitting at a certain age that's got two figures in it and it's got a, a number beginning with F in it. Um, you know, in the generation above you are all dropping like flies. And uh, although you are past the early 20s teenage stage where some people just die accidentally, too much of this, too much of that fucking around on the top of a bridge or whatever, you know, the accidental silly deaths yes. period is over and the next generation parental passing away state has arrived. Um, but when it happens to your mate, it's, it's never the right time. No, it's it's horrendous. It's, well, it's uh, a cheery, cheery subject, isn't it? Let's bring them. I know. Right, almost, oh yeah, almost and upwards. Yes, yes. Nice so, so, yes. So obviously, God, your your enthusiasm. Because most, I have to say, just one thing, and it, I, and you're one of the few people. Well, no, there are quite a lot, really. But but most people don't stick with music. You know, there's like people like Lemmy, David Bowie, and there's a few other you know people who kind of really stick with it. A lot of people will do it and then think this is too hard a gig, I'm going to get out, you know, that five years, perhaps 10 years, and then 
that's it, you know, loads of bands I've interviewed. Whereas actually, you know, you're in your third band within 10 years, which is quite amazing to keep that kind of enthusiasm. But with your next band, you bring Jasper with you as well, don't you? Which, does that feel like, thank God there's one person, not having to start all this again from scratch? Uh, it was one person who I'd just been playing with, that's Jasper, but also we now had Trotsky on drums, who was in the Subhumans. And after our first guitarist, Larry, quit, we had Phil, who used to be in the Subhumans, playing guitar. He used to play bass, now he's playing guitar. So in the end, I'm Citizen Fish is still composed of people who I've worked with in the before Citizen Fish started. Yeah, yes. that's what I'm trying to say. That's it. Your early years. But that's, you... um, I mean, it's, that's partly to do with the, the locality. West Wiltshire slash Bath is not the most populous area. There's only a certain amount of musicians who've got the gear and the time and the talent and want to be in a band. So you soon get to know quite a lot of the local musicians. Well, within a couple of years, you'd know just about everybody who's in bands. So with bands splitting up and starting again, there were quite a few hybrids flying around, really. Yeah, and did you find, because that's quite an interesting one, being a political band, you know, and having, you know, all the, everything around it, organising it, because there was a couple of people who had spent decades trying to be quite diplomatic and democratic and thinking, fucking hell, I am just going to want, this is it, the next lineup of this band, I'm going to be the person and it's me who's going to run it. How did you cope with those dynamics within the, gr within the group sometimes? Um, there wasn't that dynamic. I mean, some bands have got the same singer, but a string of different members. Yes. So that's where that dynamic you're talking about is. Um, but I've never been, I've never like, oh, Dick's got a new band and it's XYZ. It's not XYZ, it's X who used to be in this band, Y used to be in this band. There's a sort of a, a cobweb of connected musical history with all the people I play with. Yeah. So it's not a case of it's a dick band. No. <laughs> I, I, I would resent that if, if even. Yeah, but I, I, no, I suppose what I mean is that with a lot of bands, there's that element where you've got to occasionally make a decision. You've got to go with something and... And sometimes people can get frustrated if, you know, one person's doing a lot of the work and no one and other people are just faffing about and then sort of say, I want writing credits on this. And I just wondered how it's been with you, because obviously, as you said, these, these are people that you've been with since the early 80s in another band. But also at the same time, being able to sort of create something and move forward and not get frustrated because... Having been in hippie circles myself, sometimes it is that, oh, for God's sake, can we stop just talking and having votes on something? Can we just do it? <laughs> <laughs> so I just wondered how you've once or twice coped with that. Oh, for God's sake. That's trouble with all these bloody anarchists. No one wants to lead. <laughs> um, I think how we cope, because it's rare that someone leaves a band and gets replaced. Um is that people find their niches of what they're good at doing and they do it as well as they can and the other members of the band are okay with that. Um, like, I mean, I generally have ended up being the person who sorts out um, the gigs, um, sorts out what we're doing, answers 99% of the emails the band gets, 
I basically I organised a lot of stuff yes. for the band. Um, I can't drive anything bigger than a Ford Focus, so I've never been the one with the van. Trotsky's been the one with several vans. Um, Phil is currently the man with the van for Citizen Fish, as is Silas at Citizen Fish. has also got another van, so the van driver is a very important position to be in mostly because they have to keep it together at the gig and not get drunk to drive the band wherever they're going after the gig. So that's it. You know, everybody's got their thing. Um, even if nobody else does any paperwork or answers any questions or doesn't want to do any interviews, all they've got to do is play their instrument and invent the tunes for me to sing to, and then we're all happy. So yeah. it's not a case of shared workload at all. It's just everybody does what they're comfortable doing. And we haven't reached the point yet where nobody wants to do a particular thing. Somebody will always do whatever's got to be done. And generally, I don't mind if that person's me because I like being busy. Uh, fair dues. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what was your, I mean, because you on, is it Blur Records, which was the same? <laughs> no, Blurg, with a G. We pronounce the G in Blurg. Blurg. What was it's, that? It's the Queen's English. Yes, true. This Blurg. is the, the, the same yeah. great label that the Rhythmites <clears throat> were on. Did um, what was what was that like to be on that particular label? Was that a good relationship for you? The label was our own label. Um, it was my started off as a cassette label. I put out cassettes of bands that played locally, including the bands I was in, demo tapes that band sent and liked, I liked. I said, can I put this out on blur tapes? I charge uh, 50 pence and a blank tape and the 50 pence would cover the postage back. I might make 10p if I was lucky. Yeah. And um, I had a blur list of tapes and I put it out in uh, the first um, blur vinyl release, which is the Wessex 81, uh, 82, Wessex 82. Um, EP and then suddenly all these people have this list and I was getting like 20 orders a day this is why I'm still working so I come home from work eat my tea go upstairs and just be doing multiple tapes all the time for like months and months years whatever so being on Blurg meant basically running it myself except there's a big codicil to this is that Blurg along with Spiderleg Records and Crass Records were all financially backed and organized by John Loder and his Southern Studios in London. He was old friends with Crass, so he went off and earned some money, he came back, they wanted to start their own label. He said, okay, I got myself a studio, come record here, tell you what, you're all broke. I'll pay to get the record made. I'll take X percent of the profits if there are any, and we work on that basis. And that's the same basis as he did it for Flux Guineas and then us. Um, and several other bands as well. So, logically, Blurg has never actually been a completely independent label when it comes to the 80s releases. And in later decades, it is now, uh, Southern has just fizzled into non-existence. Um, but I have released uh, several records on my own back and paid for them. And it sort of works, only just, it doesn't make a mint, but it is now fully independent. Yes. 
Blimey. Although, ironically, I didn't release the latest Subhumans album on Blurg because I'm no good at actually selling copies. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm a bit of a crap distributor as well. So um, it, that, the new one came out on Pirates Press in Oakland in California because they are a very sound DIY bunch of chaps and chapesses and uh, they can afford to do it and I yeah. can't. And they can sell it, and I can't. So that's that. Well, that's good. But yeah, being on Blur, it's, it's a mix, it's a mixed thing. Every record I put out that didn't involve the bands I was in, um, I had to take fifty percent of the losses, and they all lost money. That's like Smart Pills and the Sears and the Rivermites and the Instigators. They all lost money. Um, whereas Southern would make their profit if they, I'd make a profit if they did, if if the records did, but they didn't. Whereas the bands I was in, Subhuman Citizen Fish Culture Shop, if that made a profit, I blurred wouldn't get any money as a label because I was in the band. So I'd get my quarter as a member of the band, but I wouldn't get any percentage as being the label. Southern would say that because they did all the work, which means I was running a record label at a total loss because everything I put out that I wasn't in lost me money. Everything I put out that I was in didn't make me any money because I was in the band. So it's a really strange setup. So hence, as a record label, it's it's not dysfunctional and it's not extinct. But coming soon is uh, <laughs> Bl Blur TV is the latest idea. Excellent. Yes. Well, uh, set, yeah, last um, this weekend just gone because of the lockdown and the realization that nobody is seeing gigs. Nobody's going out to gigs. You can't do a gig. You can't go to a gig unless it's very, very controlled and it's just like acoustic folk music in a pub, outside a pub, whatever. It's a rarity to get plugged in good music with like a few hundred people having a bloody good time. Anyway, so it's all gone on screen these days. I mean, here we are. Um, so we think, how can we do a gig uh, for my partner's birthday? It's an annual event. And uh, she always has Citizen Fish or Culture Shop playing a gig locally. Can't do that this year. So there's a local place called Rockaway Park. It's like south of Bristol. Uh, it's a, an amazing community and a gathering of spirits and creativity where they do Airbnb, they run a cafe, they put up a lot of people doing their own workshops on things. They do printing, T-shirt printing. Um, they're building stuff all the time. Uh, dotted around the place and all you know you go to a festival and then you see all these wacky cars with their bonnets sticking out the ground and stuff like that yes rockaway is where loads of those live when they're not at festivals they're just insane he's got a crane and he just puts cars in trees this sort of stuff mental place and yeah they're totally up for doing a gig as long as there's nobody there so what we're going to do what we are we played the gig this is like culture shock and rdf and atacop on Saturday to a total crowd of nine people, um, mostly members of the other bands, and uh, through a vocal PA, recorded it on three iPhones and two flip cams, and that was my partner's birthday present, and she loved it. She is now, with a massive capability, editing this all together, and then we're going to put it through a YouTube channel, which we're going to rename Blurred TV, uh, in about two or three weeks' time, and have the whole thing streaming, 
not live streaming because that was too much stress, just streaming, having been edited and yeah, recorded and sure. make it sound good at least. Um, on YouTube on a Saturday night towards end of September, hopefully, and just give people a chance to see some bands playing live. It's like it's not almost as close as you can get to an actual gig. It also saves you petrol, saves the planet, and uh, you can get as drunk as you want. You don't have to drive yourself home because you'll be in your house. This is this is true with your with your legally allowed friend. (laughs) (laughs) So when I mean, what was kind of boggling is is the kind of the amount of material that and and sort of the passion that you had sort of for for sort of throughout the 90s. I mean, you were bringing out almost an album a year and and sort of obviously touring and getting in the studio and writing. So, I mean, creatively, creatively, the 90s were even more prolific than the 80s. They were. Um, Citizen Fish did, I've lost count, 10 albums, nine or 10. And it was, yeah, more or less once a year. We were very prolific in terms of musical invention. Uh, the styles of music varied enough to keep it alive and going. Uh, we, for a while, were going to America once a year and uh, managing to break even if we played there for like four or five weeks. Um, we weren't getting the same crowds as subhumans. We were never quite as popular as subhumans were or are, uh, but that's the nature of, um, that's the nature, that's how it goes. We introduced Scar into our punk rock. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's a, there was a sub element of punk rockers who just didn't like Scar. Don't put Scar in punk rock. And that like, why isn't it like the subhumans? And that's a criticism like, well, deal with it. I have to deal with that. But there's another section is that, you know, I do like the subhumans. Like, I really like Citizen Fish. So it's like we've got a really keen but intensely smaller set of uh, followers. <laughs> like, yes. There's a, there's a small amount of people who like us a lot, as opposed to a lot of, a lot of people who just like us. Yes. And did you That's, ever play? And did you ever yeah. play at that Vegas event called Bowling and Punk and Bowling? Punk Rock Bowling. We did play that. Yeah, with Subhumans and Citizen Fish. A um, couple of years. Uh, that was pretty insane. But there, Las Vegas is just just weird. Really, it's like Disney on acid. <laughs> Not in a good way. No. Um, no. Yeah. Just just. But then you get thousands of punks in the middle of Vegas and it makes it seem a bit more normal. You see punks, right? you, you just head towards the punks. Hey, someone who's normal. <laughs> Cause like you're surrounded by three Elvises over here and there's four Gene Simmons over there. It's just like, whoa, you're two. I got a picture, I picture two Elvises waiting for the crossing lights to, to start up so they can cross the street. And it's just like, one of these is an imposter. <laughs> <laughs> So when, because when you uh, got the out on alternative tentacles, was that um, was that a kind of not a collaboration, but was that something that had been planned for a while? That we left over crack. Uh, goods. Oh, goods. Oh, sorry, that one. Yes. Um, uh, Jello just seemed quite happy to do the next subhumans thing. He always said that, and uh, so I just wondered if he wouldn't mind doing the next Citizen Fish thing. Instead, because at that point, subhumans actually were going. Oh, never mind. Ignore that last bit. Um, 
yeah, well, we we met him a few times. He's a nice chap, but he was up for doing it, and uh, did a good job. That was a very that was a very good record. It was a sort of a comeback record. It had Matt on it and Alex, proper um, a full brass section playing, and those guys really helped with the generation of new song ideas. We'd been going, if I remember rightly, through a little bit of a slump before that. Yeah, we sort of had a resurgence. Yeah, I mean, was were there ever times within that kind of last couple of decades where the whole thing felt a bit too much like this isn't really happening and the passion and the fire had slightly sort of dwindled a bit or, you know, because keeping anything going is quite hard. And, and if and if you feel you're the only one pushing it along, I'm not saying it's within the band, but, you know, we've all had moments where you just think, blimey, this is tough going. Um. I'm not sure what the others think. Generally, between us, the only time we had that sort of, all oh, things aren't going very well, uh, was when the Soviet split up, where we couldn't even agree that it wasn't going very well, which I guess was a sign that it wasn't going very well. <laughs> um, on a personal level, but I always get this, I find it really hard to get new songs started, whereas first lines would just pop into my head quite a lot, and these days they don't. But when I was writing the most songs, I was writing the most average, not very good songs, along with the occasional good one. So there's a fine balance and it's got to be quality, has to be quantity. And somewhere there's a nice quantity and quality thing that may still be going, but uh, I've, run, I've nearly run out of unsung songs in my songbooks. Right. Actually, no, I haven't. I've got loads, but I don't like them, so I'm not going to sing them. Fair enough. They're the ones <laughs> that I think are a bit naff and just like, what's that about? You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, the writer's block thing pops up, but then I just have to think it out of my system and just like wait and get that first line or just the topic. And I do find that some subjects, they build up without even thinking about it, and suddenly... It all comes flying out, which is good. Yeah. Sometimes things are so chaotic that you just can't find one angle to write only four verses of a chorus about. Like the angle of Trump becoming president. I wrote a 26 verse song two weeks after he became president about how basically it wasn't Bernie Sanders that we could have gone for, it was Trump that everybody went for. And it's like, what causes this sort of mad choice? in the world, and I wrote 26 verses of that, of course, completely unsung, because they're too long for a song. So yeah, sometimes you, you just get a subject and it just pours out. The skill is to be able to stop pouring it out when it's right, and have a beginning, middle and end, and it, preferably, I guess, of course. It, it, it goes on. It's not yeah. as prolific as it used to be, but it, it still carries on. The energy's still there. And I was gonna say, I mean, having done so much, and, and and a few years ago, well, not even a few years recently, there's been a lot of people putting films together of, you know, like things that happened in the 80s and are bound still happening, like the wedding present and the slits and the go-betweens and the chills. I mean, basically the dolly mixtures. I mean, have you been sort of thinking, God, I really need to archive all this because it's quite an amazing body of work and I've got a lot of material and it would be nice to have it been in a, you know, like it's nicely package yeah I suppose. wouldn't it uh, that never happens partly because it's still carrying on 
although with this lockdown going on, it's not, it's actually still going on officially, but there's no gigs. So I'm yeah. more or less locked down anyway, you know, when there's no gigs, I'm mostly at home, uh, especially now. So plenty of time to do the archiving and, but yeah, there's a hell of a lot of it. Um, I just started typing out the diary entries for the recording sessions in studios for the records that Subhumans did in order to put that out with the box set that one day we'll get together. Um, and I'm taking these bit of diary writings out from a total of 283 diaries that I've been writing since 1979. So the sheer weight, literally the weight of all this writing it just overwhelms me. Oh, you should write a book. Put it, put it out as a book. If I put all that out as a book, it would be taller than I am. <laughs> um, and most of it is really is unreadable nonsense. Um, so uh, the amount of photographs I've got, um, the amount of yeah, yeah, fanzines, it builds up and up and up. I find it hard to throw anything away. I did give a whole bunch of fanzines to a. Uh, a chap who was seriously trying to um, catalogue all the fanzines of the 80s up in Cumbria somewhere. That was a few years ago now. Opie's still going. There was a fanzine library, I think, set up in Edinburgh or Glasgow once. That might still be there. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's hard to throw away um, history like that. It's I thought of just, like, getting all, the, getting all the bits of paper and all these files and just, like, scan it all stick it on the internet and then you've got to have some space but it ain't the same it's not i've the got same. i got bag i got bags full of all the letters i received between 90 well between us the, the day i started getting letters because my address was on the back of record sleeve yes all the way up to 1991 i kept all the letters i ever got bags and bags and bags of letters i tried going through one bag last year I thought, okay, let's sort them out into Chuck and Keep, right? And it's like, okay, please send me a, this this cassette. Here's 50 pence and a C90. Name address, Chuck. No content worth none of it. Here we go. A semi-literate 12-page essay about, can't hardly read it. Probably, and then I just got stuck and gave up because... <laughs> That process itself would take weeks and weeks and weeks just to go through. Once I've selected the keepers, why do I want to keep them? If I wanted to publish them, do I track down all these people and find out where they live and ask them? It's just like, no. Why would you want to publish them? It's like, what's the point of having them? When am I going to have time to sit down and reread them? Never. Never. This is true. It's insane. I I won't have time to read my diaries unless I'm in the process of actually doing something with them. It's a catch 22 or 23 or whatever it is these days. But as long as I keep planning and organising gigs, but on the other hand, how long is this lockdown going to last for? We don't know. We're in the present. The present is way more confusing than the past. That's a fact. <laughs> One, just almost lastly, I mean, you've got that very iconic Culture Shock logo. Who developed that? You know, the real... Oh, well, the, the C goes into the S. Yes. Yeah, that was uh, oh, that was my idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did that because it's um, it comes out on t-shirts very well, doesn't it? That logo. There's a there's a few yeah. You get the shirt. The colour of the shirt can come through the letters as well. Yes, 
And I have to say it's good. So look, last question then. If you were able or could say something to your 18-year-old self who was starting out, I just wondered if there was some kind of lesson, not lesson, some wisdom that you've developed that you think, ah, oh, yes, I would just say a couple of things to them. Or you might not. You say, actually, don't worry about it, kid, just keep going. Or sometimes you think, yeah, I wouldn't. I would tell, I would tell myself that unless I'm careful, I'll be so full of myself that I will end up going out with somebody that I will regret going out with for the rest of my life. That's what I would say to my 18-year-old self, and I'd hope I would then learn from that without having to go through the process myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, Yeah, I, I, yeah it's, a, it's a personal history-based one, you know. Yeah, definitely. Avoid this particular time of life when you were going out with, like, this person. Yeah, definitely. Right. Uh, apart from apart from that advice, um, I could tell myself not to worry, but then if I just met my future self, I think I'd be really worried that I was going out of my mind. <laughs> so the, the, the very act of telling myself don't worry about anything, the future's fine, would just be like, ah. And then I work, on the other hand, the future might be fine. I could then sell my story to like Parkinson and all the talk show hosts and how I met my future self. Then I get sectioned, then it all goes bad. It goes mm. very bad. <laughs> and then the, the advice of not to worry just really doesn't work. So I wouldn't give myself any advice. You're quite right. I stay out of the past. Keep out of the past, yeah. actually. But just pick a better partner, I guess. Yeah. i got one now, though. Cheers. Cheers. This I, is good. If I could time travel, I would head to the future and just have a peek. You know what I mean? Just give me 10 minutes read of the future newspaper or whatever, just to check, oh. see what is still going on and what isn't that'd be nice that would be interesting that would be or dead scary indeed probably a bit scary anyway that's the end end of the interview thank you for listening if you still are well done you get a prize not sure what though anyway that was me in conversation with dick lucas to find out more about life in the subhumans as well as culture shock citizen fish and much much more if you want to contact me you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show, which is always very nice. Keep it positive, obviously. And um, all these shows have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. There's a lot of interviews. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.